welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet Podcast. My name is Georgia Ray, and I'm your host. Some of you may remember the episode we did last summer, featuring our fantastic summer interns. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with two of our equally wonderful spring interns. Their names are Jenny Sang and Abhi Vishwanath. I will let them introduce themselves to you in a moment. Before we get started, though, I want to give a quick preface on the format of this episode. This is mainly going to serve as a space for Abhi and Jenny to tell you, our listeners, about the independent research work they have conducted this semester. Jenny will dive into the Nagoya Protocol and its implications for the Guarani people and the international commercialization of stevia. Then, Abi will talk to us about international environmental governance, in particular how a proposed carbon border adjustment from the EU has affected India's climate goals, hydrogen investment, and trade prospects. Jenny and Abi will also tell us briefly about some of their other work for ELI and their environmental interests more broadly. So, without further ado, let's get started. Today I'm here with two of our spring interns from ELI. So I have Jenny and Abby. Jenny and Abby, thank you for being here with me today. All right. So if you guys want to start just by introducing yourselves to our guests. Jenny, do you want to go first? Hi, everyone. My name is Jenny Zhang. I'm a incoming senior at UC Berkeley studying environmental science and public policy. And I'm particularly interested in the food system and agriculture. Great. Thanks, Jenny. Hi guys, my name is Abi. I am a senior at American University and I'm studying uh, poli-sci and econ and one environmental research interest I have is kind of the intersection between climate policy and economic policy. Great. Well, thank you both for being here and I'd love to start us off just getting a little more information on the types of projects you're both working on at ELI. Abi, if you want to start this one. Yeah, so one of the projects I'm working on here is the INES project, and that's focused on building capacity for environmental enforcement programs. So during my time here, I've been doing a lot of research into different programs, both in the U.S. and internationally, to compile just a database of different environmental enforcement education organizations. And another project I'm also working on with Jenny, actually, is the RWJF project, which is focused on how the state of California consults with native tribes when they're developing on native land. And finally, I've been helping a bit on a project with you, Georgia, on the intersections between crypto policy and crypto mining and environmental justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like Abby said, we're both working on the RWJF tribe state consultation project. And so for that project, I'm looking at different key California city and county planning documents and determining to what extent they're including consultation policies and including tribal communities in their development process. And my second project is working with Georgia on this podcast. Through my 10 weeks here, I've been helping Georgia create story maps and doing like a little mini deep dive into different environmental topics. Yeah, so a little bit of uh, behind the scenes on how the podcast works. Jenny has been great this semester helping me out. And if you're a regular listener, you might have heard some of her questions that I've asked of some of our guests recently. 
So now I want to transition into really what we're here to talk about, which is your independent research project. So for those listeners that might not know, the independent research project is an opportunity ELI gives to all of its interns to really dive deep on an issue that they're particularly interested in within the environmental legal realm. So it's pretty open-ended. And, and a question I'd love to ask you guys is, you know, you're giving that fairly broad prompt. How did you go about picking a topic and, and then researching it? So at least for me, I know something that I was really interested in is more kind of taking an international focus to climate policy. So I knew starting off my project, I wanted to focus a bit on Indian climate policy, and I tried to bring more of an economic angle to it. So I started by investigating a new development in Indian climate policy, which is Indian green hydrogen investment. And I kind of wanted to look at the underlying factors on what's causing India to take such a big shift towards a new form of renewable fuel. And for my project, as I said before, I'm really interested in food systems and agriculture, as well as like food justice. And I follow the newsletter of Civil Eats, which is a publication that focuses on the American food system. And earlier this year, they had published an article on the commercial exploitation of indigenous crops and knowledge without providing due compensation to indigenous communities. And in that article, they mentioned a bunch of plants and crops that are so common to our food system now that I had no idea had ties to um, traditional communities. So for my research project, I decided to focus on one of these plants called stevia and its path to equitable benefit compensation. And now we'll move into really hearing about your guys' projects and, you know, we're going to have a little bit of time here on the episode where we'll just hear from each of Jenny and Abby, and they're going to present on what they found. So a little bit of a different format for our regular People, Places, Planet listeners, but excited to hear what these two have discovered in their research. So do either of you, you're really jumping to go first? <laughs> I can go. Okay. <laughs> I guess to start off, the general topic for my independent research project was on biopiracy. And so biopiracy is the concept of when researchers, companies, and other organizations without permission use traditional indigenous knowledge and genetic resources of plants, animals, or chemical compounds for their own commercial exploitation and profit. And so this is definitely not a new concept. It's been occurring since settlers and colonizers arrived in foreign countries and exploited traditional knowledge of local plants for their own commercial profit. And so some notable examples include coffee, spices like turmeric, cotton, rubber, some teas, and ashwagandha, which is just the latest superfood to emerge in the spotlight now that has origins in traditional knowledge. And so this concept of biopiracy is especially relevant now as climate change increases pressure on our food system and farmers in the industry look for more climate resilient, nutritious crops that can satisfy consumers' desire for new and exciting flavors, which is exactly what a lot of these indigenous crops can provide. There is a legal framework in place to prevent biopiracy from happening. It's called the Nagoya Protocol on Access to Genetic Resources and the Fair and Equitable Sharing of Benefits Arising from Their Utilization. Uh, it was established in 2010 in Nagoya, Japan, and it's a supplementary agreement 
to the Convention on Biological Diversity, which is an international legal framework that aims to conserve biological diversity. (laughs) And if I can just cut in quickly for those listeners that are more interested in learning about that specific protocol, we did talk about it with Tom Keene on an episode recently, so go check that out. I know he helped you in your research for this too, Jenny. Yeah, Tom Keene was so instrumental in my research project process and really helped me understand the complexities of the Nagoya Protocol and helped me figure out how Stevia fit into the Nagoya Protocol. And so I would definitely recommend giving that episode a listen. So the CBD, the Convention on Biological Diversity, is a international legal framework that aims to conserve biological diversity. And the Nagoya Protocol provides the legal framework for effective implementation of one of the three objectives of it, which is the fair and equitable sharing of benefits arising out of the utilization of genetic resources. And so it outlines access, benefit sharing, and compliance obligations of participating parties, and it's a legally binding instrument to set regulations on access and benefit sharing. And so, as I established previously, there are many, many products with origins and traditional knowledge, but for my project, I focused on the Guarani people who live in now what is known as Brazil and Paraguay and their plant stevia in particular and their path to equitable compensation. I was especially interested in stevia because the Guarani people have been protesting the commercialization of stevia since 2017. Stevia is a plant that's sacred to the Guarani people. They use it in their initiation ceremonies. They use it medically as a antiparasitic and an antiseptic, and they also use it as a sweetener for their yerba mate tea. And stevia as a plant is really interesting because it is 50 to 300 times sweeter than sugar, and it's a zero-calorie natural sweetener. So that has definitely piqued the interest of companies such as PepsiCo, Heinz, Nestle, and numerous other companies that are using it to create attractive zero-added-calorie drinks and foods that are sweetened by stevia. And how long has the use of stevia really been so prominent in popular companies using it as sweetener? I know that it was first discovered or quote unquote discovered by a Swiss botanist in the 1800s when he first came to the Brazil-Paraguay region and first made contact with the Guarani people. At that point, Guarani people had shared their knowledge of stevia and let the Swiss botanist know about its Mm. really exciting sweetening properties. Patents for stevia products have definitely picked up since 2000. Okay, so it's something that's sort of been around a long time, but increasingly so in the last 20 years. Definitely. And as we are facing the rise of obesity, diabetes, and other health-related illnesses that stem from a excessive consumption of sugar, a lot of consumers and a lot of industry leaders are looking towards stevia to provide a solution to kind of curb this rise in sugar consumption. This global stevia market is definitely rapidly expanding. In 2021, it was valued at $750 million USD. And by 2027, it's expected to reach over a billion dollars in value. And so stevia has already allowed these companies to reap massive profits, although none of these profits have been shared with the Guarani people even though they were the ones who initially shared knowledge of stevia to European scientists. Another thing to note is that the majority of stevia is now grown outside of the Brazil-Paraguay region, primarily in China, and the majority of global exports of stevia products also occurs outside of that region in China and France. 
So when I initially learned about stevia and the Guarani people, I was really confused as to how the Nagoya Protocol had not yet applied to stevia. There's really no mention of it in the national reports, and the national reports are published by countries who are signatories to the Nagoya Protocol. They detail what projects were triggered under the, the protocol. And so the first step in my analysis was to determine if stevia even qualified under the protocol, meaning if it even fit the definition of a biological resource. And so the protocol says that a biological resource is a genetic resource, organism, or part, or population, or any other biotic component of ecosystems with actual or potential use or value for humanity. And so stevia as a zero-calorie natural sweetener with the potential of curbing consumers' craving for sugar and the rising rates of obesity and diabetes definitely qualifies as a product with actual potential use or value for humanity. And so it definitely seemed to me that stevia should be protected under the protocol and that the Guarani should be under the protocol equitably compensated for the use of their stevia. However, that of course, does not hold true. And so to gain more clarity into what obstacles there are to equitable benefit sharing of stevia, I looked at the case study of rooibos, which is one of the only cases with substantial information that I could find of an instance where agreement under the Goya Protocol was reached. And so the case of rooibos and its agreement and its path to equitable benefit sharing occurred in 2019 between rooibos industry leaders and the San and Khoi communities of Southern Africa. And so rooibos is a herbal tea that's grown in South Africa. It's been used by the San and Khoi communities for centuries. And after a series of discussions between those communities and the rooibos industry, which have been occurring since 2014, in 2019, they finally reached an agreement where the communities will receive 1.5% of the farm gate price, which is the price agribusinesses pay for unprocessed rooibos. However, this path to the benefit sharing agreement was not super smooth. There was a lot of contention over who used rooibos first as a tea. And eventually the government ultimately accepted the agreement because one, rooibos is endemic to where it's grown in the San and Khoi communities. And Two of these communities have lived there far before settlers arrived. And so I applied this to Stevia to determine potential obstacles to its benefit sharing. And so the first thing that I wanted to be certain of was that if it was endemic to where the Guarani people lived. And secondly, if the Guarani have lived in that area before settlers arrived and commercialized stevia, which also holds true. And yet the Guarani people are still uncompensated for the use of stevia, so there must be more to consider. And so currently, Nestle and a few Switzerland-based companies have indicated willingness to discuss equitable benefit sharing. However, the biggest companies, such as PepsiCo and Coca-Cola, are not open to change, and they've in fact refused to answer questions related to stevia. For the Guarani people, they've formed a permanent assembly to monitor equitable benefit sharing, and they demand restitution for their rights for their use of their knowledge related to stevia through benefit sharing. And in an exciting legal development, the president of Brazil in May of 2016 issued Decree 8.772, which is on the protection and access to associated traditional knowledge and the sharing of benefits for the conservation and sustainable use of biodiversity. And so this regulation defines access to genetic resources or associated traditional knowledge as the practice of any research activities or technological development which includes patents, and like I said previously, stevia has been heavily patented since 2000. 
And so now the biggest obstacles to benefit sharing for Stevia are that the biggest perpetrators are unwilling to hold discussions about it at all. And additionally, there are a few issues with the framework itself. For example, there's no requirement under the protocol that industries declare commercialization of products that have ties to indigenous knowledge, and there are limited to no benefits from implementing the protocol, so there's few incentives for implementing the protocol. And additionally, the systems in the Brazil and Paraguay government may not be set up yet for implementing the protocol, as there are some case studies I looked into on other countries' governments having difficulty creating this new complex regulatory framework that's needed to carry out obligations related to the Nagoya Protocol, and so the Brazilian and Paraguayan governments may also be facing similar difficulties. And so now, once discussions are actually occurring about equitable benefit sharing regarding Stevia, parties will also have to consider the amount of compensation due to the Guarani people in the Roybo's case with the San and Koi communities, although they reached an agreement for 1.5%, they would ideally like more than 1.5% of the farm gate price. Another thing to consider is how the funds will be distributed to individuals. The Guarani community are actually made up of very different groups of individuals, and parties will have to consider how these funds or non-monetary benefits will actually reach these individuals. And additionally, had to be inclusive of bordering communities that are in the Brazil-Paraguay region that also have cultural ties to Stevia. And so to end my little recap of my independent research project, I'd like to just take a moment to reflect on the hundreds of other indigenous plants that are ingrained in our society, some of which I mentioned earlier. Of course, not all of us can contribute directly to Nagoya Protocol implementation, but I think it's a really good start to take a moment when you're cooking or when you're eating to learn about where your food is coming from and the communities whose bounty you're benefiting from to make and eat your delicious meals. I wanted to thank Sarah Backer and Tom Keen Mobegi, who have both provided really wonderful support and advice to me as I undertook this project. Well, thank you, Jenny. I really I learned a lot there about the Nagoya Protocol and and Stevia in particular. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Avi, are you ready to to give your presentation? Yes. First of all, thank you so much for that presentation, Jenny. That was really cool to learn about. As I said before, I was really focused on researching more about Indian climate policy. And the research question I settled on was, how does the EU's carbon border adjustment mechanism hinder Indian climate policy? So first, just to give a bit of background on what the carbon border adjustment mechanism is. So right now, it's a tentative agreement that the EU Parliament has been discussing for a while, and they tentatively agreed to enact it at the end of last year, and it's meant to come into effect in 2026. And what it's meant to solve is what the EU has called this problem of carbon leakage, right? Where the EU itself has relatively strict carbon emission standards, but the rest of the world in many places does not. So the problem is many of the goods that the EU imports require a significant amount of carbon to produce. So in order to account for this additional carbon in goods that the EU imports, the CBAM is meant to add an additional tariff on EU imports based on the amount of carbon emitted to produce goods mm-hmm. that are produced abroad from the EU. So just so I'm clear, there is a carbon tax in the EU, which means products anything that we're consuming kind of day to day from clothes to machinery or or even cars have to be produced with some level of renewable energy or otherwise, you know, 
moving away from carbon. And so even though those products are being produced domestically, sometimes you have a case where international products are cheaper because they were able to use, you know, cheap fossil fuel. Yeah, exactly. And the whole point of the CBM is to add an extra price onto those imports to kind of equalize the prices of the two goods. And I think on face value, the CBAM does seem like a really good idea. I think it accomplishes a lot for the EU's climate goals. But especially with a policy like this, I think it's very important to consider what are the global implications of this. So firstly, I think it's important to note that both the CBAM and the IRA that the U.S. passed are both unprecedented pieces of climate legislation. But they're also unprecedented in that they use climate legislation as a way to enforce trade protectionism, which is something that is relatively unique and something we historically haven't seen in climate policy which means also other countries don't have much time to adapt to this changing relationship between climate policy and economic policy. And another thing that I think is really important to contextualize is the historic and current relationship between climate change and colonization, where the industrialization that the US and EU underwent, which is kind of the main catalyst for the climate crisis we see now, was only made possible because of wealth that was extracted during the process of colonization. And right now, the countries that are most affected by the climate crisis are majority former colonies who themselves are trying to industrialize. So with all that given context, I was interested to explore how the CBAM would affect India, because India is not only a former colony and a global south country, but also very much relies on the EU for its international trade. So I pulled data from the BU Global Development Policy Center that showed that basically the carbon intensity of Indian exports to the EU is relatively large. It's almost double what the carbon intensity of U.S. exports to the EU are. So right off the bat, just because Indian exports to the EU are so carbon intense, many CBAM tariffs are going to hit them. And for a bit of kind of a deeper exploration on how that'll turn out, again, the BU Global Development Policy Center has great data kind of projecting. So both what will the increase in tariff burden be for India and how will Indian exports to the EU be affected? So in this projection, additional tariffs on Indian exports on certain goods could reach almost an additional 15% in tariffs. And you could see a reduction of exports, depending on the good, anywhere from 50 to 55%. So there's kind of major, major trade implications for India and the EU with the passage of the CBAM. So that, that reduction of exports that you're talking about, is that something that would come from Indian manufacturers looking to the EU as a potential market and just saying, you know, with this additional tariff, it doesn't make as much sense for our bottom line? Or would that be more of a reduction of demand from EU consumers who are going to opt for those domestically produced products when, you know, both of the prices are similar? Or is it kind of both? It is kind of both. In my research, something I found was many Indian producers are concerned that after the CBM, they simply are not going to be like viable anymore. And also something I saw in my research is with this, the EU is also very much trying to like push the idea of domestic manufacturing, domestic consumption. And one of the major goods that I'll get into later that India exports to the EU is steel. And a big push was to import more German steel to keep those kind of profits within the domestic EU sphere. So it is a bit of both. And it's a very complicated relationship that the two parties have. This additional tariff burden and the potential loss of exports has been a major concern for India. And at the end of 2022, while the CBM was being discussed, India also unveiled a plan, a massive $2.4 billion investment in green hydrogen fuel. And what I thought was very interesting with this investment is India is planning on using green hydrogen fuel to support sectors that would be targeted by the CBAM. So immediately, in the first phase of the CBM's implementation, there are six goods that the EU wants to target because they've identified them as being very carbon-intensive imports to the EU. 
One of them is steel and the other one is hydrogen. And these are the two sectors that India is planning on massively rehauling with green hydrogen investment. And as I kind of go into the more nitty gritty of India's investment plan, I want to first kind of give the caveat. I don't inherently think that green hydrogen investment is a bad idea. I think this decarbonization is a good thing. What I think is more problematic is the timetable that India has to follow. And because of that condensed timetable, what are they also not able to invest in? So what climate priorities are they currently not able to support? Because they're gearing so much of their capacity to this external issue. There is an Indian think tank called NITI Ayog, and they've done a really good job breaking down the Indian green hydrogen rollout and what are the benefits the Indian economy can see, but also what are the structural shortcomings in what this rollout is. And I think right off the bat, what I noticed is India's green hydrogen rollout is very rapid. So by 2030, the current plan is to have 50% of all hydrogen fuel that the country uses be composed of green hydrogen. And by 2050, the plan is for around 92 to 94% of all hydrogen fuel that the country uses to be green hydrogen. And there are many kind of infrastructural shortcomings with this plan. The first is cost, and cost has been a concern for green hydrogen fuel around the world, but I think it's especially relevant for India, where currently the cost of producing green hydrogen in India is about 400 rupees per kg, which is about double the price of many non-renewable fuels. But cost is something that the government has that they can work on, and I believe that as green hydrogen becomes more common around the world, we can't see cost reductions. What I think will be harder for the government to work on is the idea of transporting this fuel around the country, because India has already been hit with major supply chain issues, both domestically and internationally over the COVID pandemic, and also just building up the amount of renewable infrastructure needed for green hydrogen. So India set many targets for renewables in 2022, and they fell short on almost all of them. And this becomes really concerning, problematic, when you think of the fact that in order to meet their 2050 target for green hydrogen, India will have to double their renewable capacity that they currently have. And based on how the country's handled it so far, it's looking unlikely that they both have the money, the resources, or the infrastructural capacity to meet these targets that they're setting for themselves. Is there... I, I'm not super familiar with the Indian context, but for other countries that I've studied in this way about renewables, there's also a concern for some of them about mm -hmm. knowledge base and, yeah. and the level of education. Is there an investment in, you know, greater educational programs to train people in offering these renewables or is that is that a concern? I'm not too familiar with how like the educational shift is undergoing, but I know India itself is a country that has very much like shifted its economy's focus recently. I think there definitely is a concern on having to shift this major manufacturing base, which is primarily based on coal, to a base that's primarily renewable. And that is going to require like, a big education barrier that they have to overcome with it. So th again, that is another like kind of major institutional barrier to this proposed green hydrogen rollout. And something else I think is relatively concerning with this green hydrogen rollout was when the union budget was passed that allocated two point. I think $2.3 or $4 billion to green hydrogen, that same budget was heavily criticized because of how little money it spent on disaster relief, which is one of the most pressing concerns India has when it comes to the climate crisis. And it's something that they're underspending on because they have to account for these broad international trade priorities. And another very pressing climate concern that India has that will become exacerbated by green hydrogen investment is water scarcity. Producing green hydrogen fuel is a very water-intensive process because in order to produce hydrogen fuel without carbon as an output, 
you use water electrolysis to basically separate water into hydrogen and oxygen. So you need a lot of water to produce this fuel. And I found one study saying you need about 9,000 liters of water to produce one ton of green hydrogen, which is a lot of water when considering the fact that India is a very water scarce country. Industrial consumption of water is a major problem that India is currently dealing with, where compared to 2000, the projected increase in percent change of industrial water consumption 2050 is going to be around 300%. And that's not factoring in the extra water needed to produce green hydrogen fuel. Adding this green hydrogen investment on top of a sector that is already incredibly water scarce is only going to problematize a major problem India is currently facing with the climate crisis going forward. And talking more about kind of infrastructure capacity, again, going back to that think tank NITIIOG, they published a map of Indian states basically saying, here are the states that have the most renewable capacity at this very moment. And those states are Gujarat, Rajasthan, Maharashtra, Karnataka, and Tamil Nadu. And it's great that these states have the most renewable capacity, but these states are also themselves some of the most water scarce in India. So immediately you have this major infrastructure problem where the states that maybe have the most infrastructure to develop green hydrogen fuel are themselves the ones that are the most water scarce. Green hydrogen investment does have a lot of potential in India, and it should be explored as a viable opportunity to decarbonize the economy. But what really matters here is that India can set its own timetable for this investment and with that timetable, they're able to prioritize their own domestic climate crisis concerns. And something else I want to highlight is that policies like the CBAM are good policies, but they do need to have more of an international climate justice aspect to them, right? Where if you look at historic emissions, the two largest emitters by far are the US and EU. And policies like the CBAM basically foot the bill to Global South countries for a problem they didn't create. So going forward, there needs to be more of a focus in the CBAM to allocate tax revenue funding back to Global South countries, which was something that was in the initial draft of the bill, but was cut when the bill was passed. Going back to your discussion about the lack of infrastructure for implementing all this green hydrogen investment, could you tell us a little bit more about what the government in India has done to address these infrastructure concerns? The current bill that's been passed by the Indian government they have set a bunch of steps on how they're going to meet their 2030 and 2050 targets. And they are planning on building a lot of like green hydrogen infrastructure. And something they're also focused on working on to overcome domestic shortcomings is international green hydrogen agreements. There's like talks to work with the government of Egypt to create international green hydrogen program to mitigate some of the domestic infrastructure shortcomings. So I think there are a lot of innovative policies that are being put forth to make green hydrogen work for India. But the problem is the overcommitment to address a broad international concern as opposed to domestic concerns. Well, Abby, I thought that was really interesting. And Jenny, thank you as well for asking that great question and for your presentation earlier and for both of you joining me today. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, Jenny and Abby are two of our great research and publications interns this semester here at ELI. Courtney Deloach-Hill and Elodie Nix are also some interns here. So definitely check out what they've been working on and follow along in their journeys, all four of them, as they progress in their environmental careers, which I'm sure will be illustrious. They're all set to do great things. So thank you guys for joining me today. And thank you for, you know, being at ELI this semester. Thank you so much, Georgia, again for having us. It was so much fun. Thank you for having us on the podcast. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, 
attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.